Short Rounds. Hello and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser. Happy New Year, first of all. We're snowed in up here in Wisconsin. And what'll keep us warmer than one more trip to Brazil? We have one final short round related to the Paraguayan War saga before we go globetrotting again and leave South America behind for a very long time. Today's short round is one that I promised to deliver during the Paraguayan War series. This will wrap up all the stuff I promised I said I would do during the Paraguayan War series. <laughs> it focuses on one of the main figures in that series, a man for whom the Paraguayan War was only one chapter of a long and fascinating life. This is Dom Pedro II, the second and last emperor of Brazil from 1831 to 1889. Yes, he was emperor for 54 years. And surprisingly, he was one of the most competent, decent, and forward-thinking monarchs of the 19th century, a man committed to education and progress and modernity and the good of his people. But the Paraguayan War, which Pedro did nothing to start but did much to continue, sowed the seeds of his downfall. So this episode will be a biography of a fascinating, forgotten leader of the 19th century, from his childhood in a glass prison to his death in exile. I don't even think this really is a short round. It is way too long for that. It's like a double short round, but I don't have a name for this format yet. I also am stretching the definition of military history. There is very little military history in this episode, although there is, you know, a military coup at the very end. But I think this is one you guys will want to hear. It's an amazing story of an amazing man, but it is a tragedy. At the end of the day, most biographies are. As always, this is history. People aren't perfect. They get up to some unpleasant stuff. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources are in the big Paraguayan War source post, so if you want them, go get them. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story of a real man who doesn't deserve to be an unknown emperor. Now... It's been a while since Paraguayan War Part 1. Chances are you've forgotten what the Empire of Brazil even was. Story goes like this. In 1807, Napoleon was on one of his usual rampages across Europe when he invaded Portugal, sending the Portuguese king and his court fleeing into exile. They fled to their richest colony, Brazil, and set up their capital at Rio de Janeiro. King Joao VI hung out in Brazil for 13 years until he returned to Portugal in 1821, leaving his son Pedro as his regent. But after 13 years of being the site of a royal court and the seat of a monarchy, Portugal wanted Brazil to just go back to being a colony. But the plantation class, the Brazilian elite, had other ideas. They wanted autonomy. So they convinced Pedro to declare himself emperor of the newly independent Brazil in 1822. The new empire was a constitutional monarchy, partially modeled on the British government. There was a parliament with a senate and a chamber of delegates, an upper and a lower house. Royal power was limited. This was not an absolute monarchy, but the emperor did have very real power. He appointed every minister, including the prime minister, and could veto any law for any reason. The emperor could only approve laws from the legislature. He couldn't just make up a law, so that was a limit on his power. Like, the legislature had to send him a law for him to pass it. These powers that the emperor had were referred to as the poder moderador, the moderating power, designed to moderate the chaos of parliamentary politics. But this was not a truly representative state. Senators were appointed by the emperor and served for life. The Chamber of Deputies was elected, but very few people met the income requirement to vote, and even then, elections were extremely corrupt. And even then, the Emperor could dissolve the Chamber of Deputies and call a new election whenever he wanted. If he didn't like the results of the last election, he could be like, nope, throw that one out, new election. So this was an extremely conservative system where very few people could vote, voting barely mattered, and the Emperor could veto anything he wanted. Why was it like this? Well, the purpose of a system is what it does. This was a system designed by and for the slaveholding plantation class to serve their interests, preserve their political and economic power. Any reform, any change to this system was, was extremely difficult, even for the emperor, by design. It would take a very skillful monarch to operate in this tar pit of a governing system. Pedro I was not that guy. 
His absolute ideal of monarchy did not jive with the Brazilian elite. He did everything wrong, made everyone mad, and in 1831 he was forced to abdicate and return to Portugal. The emperor was not untouchable. If he pissed off the wrong people, he could be evicted. Hint, hint. Pedro I left his five-year-old son behind to serve as the new emperor. This kid's full name was... <clears throat> Pedro de Alcantara, Joao Carlos, Leopoldo, Salvador, Bibiano, Francisco, Javier de Paula, Leocadio, Miguel, Gabriel, Rafael, Gonzaga. That was his name. And he thought millennials were bad at naming their kids. So historians just call him Pedro II. And on April 7, 1831, he became the second and last emperor of Brazil. Now... Five-year-olds are notoriously bad at things like governing or leading armies or emotional management, so Parliament appointed a three-member Regency Council to run the country until Pedro II came of age. And these guys sucked at their job. Brazil was in borderline chaos for a decade as the Regency tried and failed to actually govern. In the meantime, Pedro II was molded and shaped to become the savior of his nation. Pedro and his two sisters, Hanuaria and Francisca, basically never had a childhood. The regents managed their care and education, but this meant that their upbringing became a matter of politics. The girls had it bad enough, but Pedro was in a unique and honestly kind of traumatizing position. Whoever controlled him controlled Brazil's future, so all these politicians and factions were always trying to manipulate him. He had no permanent guardian, no parental figure, no advocate who could speak on his behalf, his interests. It was a state-controlled childhood for one kid, treated as a national interest by the whole body politic. It honestly sounds dystopian, not dissimilar to, like, The Truman Show or something. Pedro was subjected to a grueling, rigorous education, with no time for friendship or play. He was borderline isolated from the outside world with ideas like duty, honor, manners, repose, poise, and the gravity of his position constantly drilled into him. His tutors were forging him into the ideal Brazilian citizen ruler, and this meant massive pressure and indoctrination at all hours of the day. He was constantly on display, tangled up in ceremonies, and strutted around by his guardians. As an adult, Pedro described it as being enclosed in a glass tower, a beautiful transparent prison where he could never hide. It might be hard to feel sympathy for Pedro given that Brazil still ran on plantation slavery, but Pedro was kind of a prisoner as well. So Pedro grew up with no parental love or affection, under constant stress and pressure, shut off from the outside world, being told every minute that it was his duty and responsibility to rule and lead his country. And all this left a strong mark on his personality. Even very young, Pedro was serious, somber, almost melancholy. One commentator noted that at 11 years old, he acted like he was 40. Pedro was emotionally closed off for the rest of his life, very slow to love, very slow to trust, afraid to be vulnerable to anybody. Honestly, a very lonely man all his life. His only escape from the alienating world outside was in books. Books didn't die young like his mom, or run off to Portugal and leave him orphaned like his father, or manipulate him like his guardians. When Pedro sought refuge from carrying the weight of his nation, there were books. And this began Pedro's lifelong obsession with education. He came to believe that knowledge and science were the bedrock of civilization, that enough education could bring his nation into the modern age. Pedro read constantly, wrote constantly, always wanting to learn something new or talk to someone new. He became a polymath, stunning people with his knowledge on literature and chemistry and ge geology and anthropology, any subject under the sun. By the end of his life, he spoke and wrote 14 languages. Portuguese, Latin, French, German, English, Italian, Spanish, Greek, Arabic, Hebrew, Sanskrit, Chinese, Akatan, and Tupi. He was also fascinated by modernity and technology. In 1840, at the age of 14, he became the first Brazilian to operate a new cutting-edge piece of technology, the daguerreotype camera. But while Pedro was being educated... Brazil was in crisis. The 1830s and early 1840s were a time of political instability and constant rebellions. 
Some rebellions wanted the abolition of slavery, though not many. Some wanted provincial independence or autonomy. Some wanted a republic. Brazil was not really a nation. It was just a collection of provinces stuffed inside one suit with all their own interests and values. It was less than a quarter century old, and Brazil was already falling apart. Only one thing, one linchpin kept this mess bound together, and that was the monarchy. It was Pedro, a child. He was the symbolic manifestation of Brazil's unity and its future. Nothing else kept this country together in the 1830s and 1840s. The Brazilian ruling class needed someone to be the first citizen, the model citizen, someone above politics, above province, above class interests, someone who could turn their enormous disunited country into a true nation. Historian Roderick Barman says, They had lost all faith in their ability to rule the country on their own. They accepted Pedro II as an authority figure whose presence was indispensable for the country's survival. So the government pushed Pedro to assume power and assume the throne early. On July 18, 1841, at the age of 14, a sad, quiet, unloved teenager went to his coronation and took the throne. This kid who was supposed to save Brazil from absolute chaos. Pedro II would rule Brazil in his own right for 48 years, from 1841 to 1889. He had been molded and shaped his entire life to be the embodiment of his nation, the ideal Brazilian, the, the citizen emperor, a massive burden forced on him from the moment he could speak. And he resented it. He hated the trappings of royalty. He despised the pomp and ceremony. He was an introvert constantly surrounded by people, emotionally deprived, stifled and suffering under the chains of his duty. He wanted nothing more in the world but to just sit in his study and read his books and leave everything else behind. Pedro resented the burden, and he accepted it. He already displayed the qualities he would show all his life. An astonishing work ethic, a strong sense of integrity and moral righteousness, and an absolute devotion to his country's welfare. He saw it as his duty to forge his nation, advance his people, and drag his country kicking and screaming into the modern age. He was the only one that could. No one else could do what his job was. None of this was inevitable. Like None of this good qualities of Pedro were inevitable. A lot of people in his position would have been jerks. <laughs> they would have been selfish, tyrannical, ignorant, or lazy. Like, think about it. You're told your entire life, the world, the country revolves around you. You were the most important person in your country above everybody else. That would go to someone's head very quickly. I think 99 times out of 100, Pedro becomes another aristocratic douchebag in a century full of aristocratic douchebags. But whether it was nature or nurture, Pedro defied the odds. He became one of the most admirable monarchs of the 19th century, the citizen emperor of Brazil. When Pedro came to power, Brazil was on the verge of disintegration. But just by being on the throne, a symbol of political stability and authority, his very assumption of the throne calmed things down. Many rebellions just faded away, and those that didn't were defeated by Pedro's general, a guy who had once been his fencing and riding instructor when he was younger, a middle-aged army officer named the Baron of Caxias. Pedro backed Caxias up with amnesty for former rebels and compromise on political issues, which took a lot of wind out of the sails of rebellion. But Pedro was still a teenager, and he was still kind of immature in lots of ways. This immaturity showed when he met his wife for the first time. The Brazilian government had negotiated for the hand of an Italian princess named Teresa Cristina. But when Pedro met her, he was visibly disappointed. And, you know, she noticed this and was very upset about it. <laughs> Teresa Cristina was what the kids these days would call, uh, mid, I guess. It, I mean, it sounds like, you know, she wasn't a famous beauty by any stretch of the way. She was a very wonderful woman, lovely woman, but no one comments on how hot she is. And it sounds like Pedro was kind of a jerk to her when he met her. Like, but I mean, you're a teenager. You get told, hey, we found a wife for you. Here she is. You're getting married tomorrow. This is the woman you'll spend the rest of your life with. Good luck. And you are absolutely unattracted to her. But Pedro did his duty. The marriage was fulfilled and consummated. 
And while he never had a true romance with his life, he grew to love and care for her. They became partners, if not, you know, a great romance. And she was absolutely devoted to him. But Pedro's teenage dirtbag era didn't last. By the mid-1840s, he was coming into his own. He and Teresa Cristina had several kids, though only two daughters survived her to adulthood. And fatherhood changed Pedro's outlook. Let's get a look at this guy. Six feet three inches tall, blue eyes, blonde hair, and most of all, his big, famous, bushy beard. Literally growing the beard. This was no longer just a boy named Pedro. This was Dom Pedro. Dom or Don is like an honorific title in the Latin languages, like a title of respect and dignity, which is why the Mafia uses it. Before I talk a bit more about Pedro's character, I have to open with this. This man was not perfect. This is not a hagiography. Pedro could be very antisocial and arrogant. He was kind of a know-it-all. And sometimes he was frustrating because he was very, very stubborn when he made up his mind about something. He was very set in his ways. But for modern observers, Pedro's most striking character flaw was in his infidelity. Man cheated on his wife. I mean, this is the 19th century and he's a monarch. Everyone is doing this. This is not unusual at all. I think the only monarchs of this age that didn't cheat on their wives were, uh, or spouses were Albert and Victoria. But that's, they just never had the imagination to, I guess. But, okay, people cheat for lots of reasons. None of them really excusable. Pedro's excuse, if you can call it that, was that he lacked emotional intimacy. He was trying to fill the void left by his loveless upbringing. If Pedro did have a romance in his life, it was not his wife. It was Luisa Margarita de Bardos, the Condesa de Barral, or the Countess of Barral. She was a daughter of French nobility who came to court in 1856 as the tutor to Pedro's daughters, Princesses Leopoldina and Isabel. The Condesa became Pedro's best friend, his closest companion, the only one he could unburden himself to and be himself with, and she viewed him the same way. She provided the intellectual stimulation and emotional depth that Pedro never had with his wife, Teresa Cristina. But Pedro and the Condesa's relationship was never consummated. They did not sleep together. They both understood the discretion that their positions required, and you get the sense that this was a line they knew they could never uncross. Like, if we do this, there's no going back. Best to keep things where they are. They very clearly burned for each other, but it could never happen. This was definitely an emotional affair, if not a physical affair, and it lasted almost to the end of their lives. We would know almost nothing about this relationship, except for one amazing find. In the 1940s, the Condessa's grandson discovered a set of 256 letters that Pedro had written to his special friend. Pedro burned all his correspondence from the Condessa, but she kept some of his letters. And these letters extend through the Paraguayan War. There's a bunch of letters he wrote to her twice a month during the Paraguayan War. So we get Pedro's mood shifts and his thoughts, his personal ideas, his hopes, his fears throughout one of the most turmoil-wracked stages of his reign. Like, any quote I used from Pedro during the series came from one of his letters to the Condesa. So, accepting all Pedro's flaws... What were his strengths? What gave Dom Pedro the name O Magnanimoso, the magnanimous, that he would carry later in life? Pedro's mission was to be the iconic Brazilian, the model citizen, the exemplar. He carried himself with poise and dignity. He was always courteous, kind, and patient. He never lost his temper. He was always cool-headed, always keeping a firm control on his emotions. Control, control. That was Pedro. He hated public ceremony, hated being constantly in the public eye, but he did what he saw as his duty. One letter to the Condessa said, How much does not a formal court cost me? How it galls me! But it is a sign of gratitude from my beloved subjects. I must receive it with a happy face. Pedro did not give a crap about all the usual royal stuff. All the hunting stuff that the rulers did in that time, all the hunting and drinking and partying, he did not care. What he thought was important for his nation was education, 
knowledge, schooling, the arts, the sciences. He was a patron of the theater. One of the ways he did bond with his wife was over their mutual love for music. He loved to take things apart, always ordering the newest inventions from Europe and America so he could dismantle them and see how they ticked. He had a chemistry lab and an observatory in his palace. He even wrote a children's astronomy textbook for Brazilian kids. Pedro corresponded with scientists like Alexander von Humboldt and Charles Darwin. He was constantly reading, constantly writing, always trying to learn more. But Pedro knew that knowledge on his own, on its own, was pointless. He wanted to spread it to his nation. He said, Were I not an emperor, I would like to be a teacher. I do not know of a task more noble than to direct young minds and prepare the men of tomorrow. Pedro founded the Imperial Academy of Music and National Opera and the Pedro II School, Brazil's first public school. He founded the Brazilian Historical and Geographic Society and funded the Imperial Academy of the Fine Arts. He used his personal money, not the government's money, his personal money, to donate to Louis Pasteur's Institute and Wagner's Opera House, but most of all to pay for scholarships for young people of all races. He even paid for the education of his servants' children. Pedro became a beacon of knowledge and progress, even overseas. Charles Darwin said, The emperor does so much for science that every scientific man is bound to show him the utmost respect. Pedro had to be everywhere, see everything. He was constantly visiting factories and schools and workshops and hospitals and barracks of the new modern Brazil. He attended the graduation ceremonies of every university in the capital every year, shaking hands with all the students. He just wanted to see these young people graduating from the academies and being and taking their knowledge into the world. One observer described him just rolling around Brazil, just putting his hands on everything. He is affable with everyone, speaks to anyone, asks questions, and tries to be informed about the smallest things. He has gone about on foot like a simple citizen, accompanied only by those who want to be with him, with no ceremony whatsoever. The distance which in the court separated him from the people has disappeared, and this without the least loss to his dignity, since his prudence and his good manners cause everyone to esteem and respect him. In an age when most monarchs tried to make their palaces as opulent as possible, Pedro rejected glamour. He usually just wore a suit or a top hat, no fancy uniforms like other monarchs. Observers commented on the relatively low quality and short duration of royal feasts, the lack of servants, the lack of parties, just and the general lack of upkeep done to his palace. After 1852, there were no balls in the Brazilian imperial court. He thought they were wastes of money. Pedro said, I understand that useless expenditure is the same as stealing from the nation. He gave away most of his royal revenue to scientific institutions and charity organizations. The only thing he really wanted was more books. The immortal image in Brazilian history of Dom Pedro isn't of a conqueror. He's not holding a scepter or posing for a painting or exercising authority. It's of a bearded, slightly pudgy man at a desk in his study, working long hours into the night, reading, writing, reading, writing, especially government documents. Because Pedro was, above all, an emperor. It was his job to steer Brazil into nationhood, into the modern age, and thanks to the absolute mess that was their political system, he had to do it very carefully. His character allowed him to carefully maneuver the government the way he wanted, allowed him to work with anyone and stay above political infighting. This, his majesty, his reserve, his patience, his calm, just made him a very effective emperor in, within this system. He paid very careful attention to the details and workings of government, knew every bill and every law better than his ministers, and sat them down for long hours to debate and decide on the issues of the day. Like, Pedro would hold his ministers in the meeting until, like, we're going to reach a decision on this, and they groaned. This took forever, but he, w- he wanted to get it done. Dom Pedro was very progressive for the 19th century, much more than most Brazilian politicians. This was a country where even the Liberal Party were a bunch of slave owners. They were just the ones who felt a little bit bad about it, unlike the conservatives who didn't. Pedro had to fight with Parliament for every single thing, whether it was voting reform or funding for infrastructure or any change to 
legal rights or the rights of slaves. Every year saw the emperor pushing some measure and parliament fighting him tooth and nail. Getting things done required Pedro to use his moderating power effectively, to call for elections when the time was right, to find prime ministers who could get things done, to subtly push things while staying within his constitutional limits. Historian Roderick Barman says, He needed to maintain a reputation for impartiality, work in accord with the popular mood, and avoid any flagrant imposition of his will on the political scene. Pedro got a lot done in the 1850s. He oversaw huge investments in infrastructure and technology, including Brazil's first railroads, telegraph lines, and steamships. He maintained freedom of speech and of the press and all other civil liberties. He believed in human rights. He believed that freedom of speech and of the press was important for the progress of Brazil. He guided Brazil through diplomatic crises like the Platine War in 1852. He indirectly eliminated the death penalty by just using his moderating power to veto any death warrant so people stopped bothering to pass death sentences, and that was the end of the death penalty. Pedro's biggest fight in the 1840s and 50s was to ensure the abolition of the slave trade. It took years to accomplish this, just to stop the slave ships from coming across the Atlantic, but after enormous effort, Pedro and his chosen ministers got it done. Of course, they still had a long way to go. One of Pedro's big unrealized goals was widespread election reform. He said, Our principal political need is the freedom of elections. Without this freedom and that of the press, there exists in reality no constitutional system. The other great struggle was the abolition of slavery. Pedro hated slavery. He saw it as a human indignity holding his country back. He had freed all his personal slaves as soon as he took the throne in 1840 and spent time buying the freedom of others. But his power and his funds were limited, and the road to defeating slavery would be long and difficult. Pedro himself was one of the rarest things in the 19th century. He wasn't a racist. No joke, an actual non-racist, extremely rare in the 19th century. He had close friends of all races, including Candido de Fonseca Galvao, a former Zuavo Bahiano who became a close personal friend in the 1870s. Look, this is one incident where Pedro visits a night school in Rio. Just He's visiting schools all the time. And he finds out that a freed slave had been, just enrolled himself so that he could learn how to read. Pedro instantly demanded to see this slave who thought he was going to learn how to read. When he entered the classroom, he went up to him, clapping him on the shoulder, as a demonstration of his immense satisfaction in seeing the way in which a man of the people was striving to learn how to be useful to the country and his family. This was a very strange act for Pedro to be showing such open emotion about something, and for a monarch to show such personal approval of a freed slave, especially a black man in Brazil, a place where race still mattered very much. Pedro's respect and lack of prejudice to all peoples, black, Amerindian, Muslim, Jewish, is honestly one of the most incredible things about him. As good of a job as Pedro did, he always resented the sheer weight he carried. He always seemed so melancholy, so lonely, so somber. All this work, all this stress, all these long nights and early mornings, they bore heavily on a man who had never really wanted to be emperor. He found no freedom from the burden. One observer said, The emperor has told his intimate friends that the Brazilians want an emperor much more than he wants an empire. Like, Pedro was never going to sing, I just can't wait to be king. He resented the burden, he hated the burden, but he knew that's what his people expected of him, so he did it. When someone commented that Pedro ought to be more cautious with the conservatives or he might lose his throne, he replied, What sort of fear could I have? That they take the government from me? Many better kings than I have lost it, and to me it is no more than the weight of a cross, which it is my duty to carry. For most Brazilians, Pedro was indispensable, the critical piece of the Brazilian government, the man who kept everything running smoothly. For Pedro, it was still that glass prison, a duty heavier than a mountain. And that duty was about to get heavier still. Because the war came. If there's anything we do not need to rehash in this podcast, it is the Paraguayan War. But the war played a huge role in Pedro's life. 
He had very little to do with starting it. He was never a military man. He never sought out conflict. Not a war hawk. But as Pedro saw it, Solano, Lopez, and Paraguay proved themselves to be a major threat to the peace of South America, and he could not rest until they were defeated. It was a question of national honor, which Pedro saw himself as duty-bound to uphold. For Brazil to move forward, Lopez must be defeated. This is that same determination, that same stubbornness I talked about when I talked about Pedro's character. He brought this to the war effort. Pedro worked as hard for the war effort as he did for everything else. When news of war hit the capital in January 1865, Pedro rallied public support by founding the Voluntarios de Patria, the Fatherland Volunteers, with himself as the first volunteer. He worked long hours to bring the government together, uniting the political parties and factions behind the cause. Pedro spent even longer hours at his desk in the military facilities of Rio, organizing troops and supplies and reinforcements for the war front. And in June 1865, when Paraguayan forces invaded the province of Rio Grande do Sul, Pedro decided to go to the front. He wrote to the Condesa, Rio Grande has been invaded. My place is there, and I will go there the day after tomorrow. To highlight just how little control Pedro had over his own life, the government refused to allow him to go at first. Legally, Pedro was not allowed to leave the country without Parliament's permission. Pedro finally convinced them that if they didn't let him go, he would abdicate the throne and enlist in the Voluntarios de Patria. (laughs) And that worked. Pedro took his old friend, the Marquis of Caxias, as his military aide. Also tagging along was his daughter Isabel's new husband, Gaston d'Orléans, the Comte du. The Comte du would be begging Pedro for a military command for years until he finally got one in 1869, which we talked about in Paraguayan War Part 5. Pedro arrived at the Siege of Uruguayana just in time to meet with Mitre and Flores and to see the Paraguayan army surrender on September 18th. The Allied victory at Uruguayana was seen as a triumph for Pedro personally as well as for Brazil. The emperor was clearly the dominant personality among the Allied leaders. One Brazilian engineer officer saw Pedro with Mitre and Flores and remembered, The emperor, with his great height, speaking to his subjects, to Mitre, to Flores, in fact, to all who surrounded him, seemed to be saying, Acknowledge that I am in truth the first citizen of South America. This was Dom Pedro's only visit to the war front. For the rest of the conflict, he would manage things back in Rio, wrangling the government and rallying his people to continue the war. At several points, Pedro's personal will was all that kept Brazil going. He saw Lopez as the anti, the great nemesis, the embodiment of backwardness and militarism and dictatorship, the opposite of all Pedro's personal values. And Pedro believed that victory was necessary for his new political objective, the abolition of slavery. Up north, the American Civil War had just ended, and this left Brazil as the last independent country in the Americas that still had slavery. Ending it would be the greatest challenge of Pedro's life, even bigger than the Paraguayan War. Convincing Brazil's slaveholding elite to give up the main source of their wealth was an even greater obstacle than Lopez. But when the Paraguayan War broke out, Pedro had to pause his domestic agenda. Foreign problems first, then domestic. Pedro did test the waters during the war. In 1867, when he made his yearly speech from the throne, basically his State of the Union address, and for the first time, he made a public declaration in favor of tackling the issue of slavery. And just mentioning this was immediately met with shrieks of outrage from the politicians, who said it would be national economic suicide. And during wartime, you're striking at our property rights. The whole thing, reason we built this system was to preserve our, you know, our prestige and our rights and our property. Imagine the chaos. Imagine the social upheaval. Your majesty, give it up. No one else wants this. Pedro knew he had to wait until he had the ca- political capital to move. And for this, victory was necessary. The war had to be won. Pedro appointed the Marquis of Caxias to lead Brazil's armies to victory, and by 1868, the Iron Duke was making progress. But in August 1868, Caxias had a dispute with the cabinet, causing a political crisis. 
Casillas was a conservative and the cabinet was liberal, and Pedro was forced to pick a side. He sided with Casillas, and the liberal cabinet resigned. Pedro justified his decision. It was due to a desire to end the war with the greatest honor and advantage for Brazil. The liberal ministry was unable to continue with Casillas remaining at the head of the army. In Don Pedro's mind, Casillas was the only one that could deliver victory. So if it was him or the liberal ministry, the liberals had to go. But to the liberals, this damaged the emperor's reputation as being nonpartisan, above politics. They saw Pedro as abusing his moderating power. He had the power to do these things, but doing them too much was bad for the long-term health of the monarchy. The liberals would remember Pedro's intervention in 1868 and carry that grudge for decades to come. It's worth pointing out the differences between Francisco Solano Lopez and Don Pedro, these two enormous personalities on opposite sides of the Paraguayan War. They had a lot in common. Their patriotism, their determination, their love for culture and modernity and technology, even their affairs with women who served as their emotional anchors, Don Pedro and the Condesa de Baral, Solano Lopez and Eliza Lynch. But there were huge differences, too. Lopez saw himself as a military leader. Pedro saw himself as a civilian. Lopez was a man of passion with no self-control. Pedro was self-control personified. Lopez was authoritarian. Pedro was all about compromise and civil liberties and human rights. Finally, Lopez saw his country as an extension of himself, while Pedro saw himself as an extension of his country. They both saw themselves as the avatars of their nations, but Lopez placed himself above in a dominant role, while Pedro placed himself among in an almost subordinate role. As a, Pedro saw himself as a servant of his nation. Lopez saw his nation as his servants. And we can see this from their behavior. As we saw, Lopez had many chances to sacrifice his own power and ego to save his nation from bloodshed and war. All these times when they're like, hey, Lopez, you just leave the country, your country will be spared the war and it'll be over. And he turned them all down. Would Pedro do the same? If it came down to bloodshed for Brazil or Pedro leaving Brazil, what would Pedro do? We don't have to ask. We're going to find out eventually. But when final victory came in the war, Pedro refused to allow a victory statue of himself to be built in Rio. Instead, he asked that the money raised for the project be used to fund elementary schools. Everyone's like, fine, fine. We, we knew you were probably going to say something like that. But the war had visibly aged Dom Pedro II. He looked much older than his 45 years. His beard was gray, his face lined. He seemed a little more tired, a little less energetic. The burden he had carried for 30 years still weighed him down, but the work never ended. There was always so much to do, so much to accomplish, and so little time. Time was always running out. With the war won, Pedro was finally able to make his move against slavery. He had no constitutional ability to abolish slavery on his own and had to use every ounce of his moderating power and persuasive influence to even get the issue on the agenda. Abolitionism was still a very fringe movement, even among the liberals. So Pedro had a compromise in mind. He appointed José Paranjos, Viscount of Rio Branco, as his prime minister. I mentioned Paranjos a little bit in Part 5. He was the Brazilian minister setting up the provisional government in Paraguay. He was a conservative, but while in Paraguay, he had been converted to the abolitionist cause. His ministry and the emperor built a compromise solution, and over the next few months, they finessed it through parliament. This was the Compromise of 1871. All newborn children of slaves would be born free, and any slaves owned by the Brazilian government itself would be freed automatically. This law was called the Free Womb Law, or the Free Birth Law, or the Rio Branco Law after the Viscount of Rio Branco. It was not the end of slavery. It only freed a few slaves at first, but it was something the conservative aristocracy could live with, and it guaranteed that slavery would die, at least a slow death, because after a while, they're going to run out of slaves because every newborn child from a slave is now free. For abolitionists, this wasn't enough, but it was a start. 
The 1870s and 1880s were the height of the Brazilian Empire. The war was won, the economy was booming, railroads and telegraphs were being laid down, immigrants were flowing in, schools were popping up left and right, and the end of slavery was in, the, was in sight. A lot of the credit for this must go to Pedro, for his political ability, his work for the arts and sciences and technology, and his anti-slavery activities and most of all for his personal example, for the stability and prestige that he brought to Brazil. Now that things were going so well, Pedro decided he wanted to go see the world. He wanted to make an international tour to boost the image of Brazil worldwide, and of course he wanted to leave the country for the first time in his life. Between 1871 and 1888, Parliament gave Pedro permission to make three trips overseas, 1871, 1876-7, and 1887-8. And Pedro galloped across Europe and North America like a madman. His family and friends were barely able to keep up. Pedro wanted to see everything, meet everybody, go everywhere. He went to London, Paris, Rome, Germany, Greece, Egypt, Russia, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. He visited cathedrals and synagogues and mosques, the Eiffel Tower in the Scottish Highlands, the pyramids in the Parthenon. And there are plenty of pictures, like this, and just a wave of photographs of Pedro just looking and seeing all these things. You know, in a lot of these pi- pictures, um, he's standing next to his wife and uh, the Condesa de Baral, and his wife and Condesa de Baral do not get along, so they're standing on, like, opposite ends. <laughs> He met Queen Victoria, Victor Hugo, Richard Wagner, and dozens of other scientists and artists and rulers, and he impressed them all. Queen Victoria wrote in her diary, It cannot be said what he has not seen and done. He begins the day at six in the morning and remains up late at parties. Though Victoria was miffed that instead of wearing royal attire to her balls, Dom Pedro wore a suit and bow tie, like he's dressing like the middle class. Pedro visited the United States of America in 1876. Okay, let's go. (laughs) He arrived in New York and met a very young, barely established New York politician named Theodore Roosevelt and shook his hand. He went to Washington, D.C. and hung out with President Ulysses S. Grant and the Army's commanding general, William T. Sherman. Pedro thought Sherman was more interesting. He thought Grant was boring. He rode the new Transcontinental Railroad to San Francisco, visiting a Mormon church in Utah along the way. He admired a school for black children in New Orleans. Pedro despised Jim Crow and racial segregation. He expected better of America. He visited Niagara Falls and had drinks with John Greenleaf Whittier and dinner with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876, the first World's Fair ever to be held in the United States, Dom Pedro drew the judge's attention like, Hey, hey guys, why aren't you looking at this? Come over here and look at this cool thing. To a Scottish inventor named Alexander Graham Bell and his new telephone. Dom Pedro's just force gumping his way across the 1870s globe. (laughs) Pedro left his daughter Isabel, the heir apparent, as his regent during his trips. Isabel wasn't ready for the sheer weight of responsibility, and she knew it. She held down the fort while Dad was gone, but she clearly wasn't ready to take over for him full-time. But each time Pedro returned to Brazil, he was more reluctant, more aware of the burden he was assuming. He was growing tired of a whole life carrying that weight, bearing that cross, dragging his country forward. Decades of overwork were finally starting to tell. Pedro wrote to a friend in 1875. If I haven't written to you, it is because business seems to increase every day, and I am starting to get tired. Isabel's husband, the Comte du, remembered Pedro's return from Europe in 1877. I found the emperor physically unchanged, but psychologically more sluggish, contrary to what I had expected. He himself complains that he can no longer read without going to sleep. Pedro was pessimistic about the future of the empire. He had had two sons, but both had died very young, long before the Paraguayan War, and his faith in his dynasty died with him. The 1871 death of his daughter Leopoldina was another blow. He loved his only surviving child, his daughter Isabel, with all his heart. She still called him daddy well into middle age, but she didn't really want to rule. 
she saw what it had done to her father. Pedro seemed resigned that the Brazilian Empire would die with him. But there was still so much to do, so little time, so much to do. The old emperor might have only a couple of big victories left in him. Make the time count. But time was running out. Pedro had been ahead of the times for most of his life, but the times were catching up. He no longer set the agenda. Public opinion, especially elite opinion, saw Pedro as redundant, an old fool, almost an embarrassment. Newspapers began to mock him, his old fashions, his lack of style, his archaic affections and attitudes. Pedro would never stop people from writing these things. He believed in freedom of speech and the press, but it undermined his prestige. More than that, there was growing talk of republicanism. Brazil was the only monarchy in a continent full of republics, and monarchy was increasingly seen as outdated. And Pedro had never been one to uphold the dignity and majesty of the sovereign. He had done a lot to dispel that aura of royalty. He had dismantled the ceremonies and pomp and glamour that make an emperor look imperial. His palaces were in disrepair, he didn't throw balls, didn't have giant parades or processions. He just didn't act like royalty. And without the aura of royalty, it seemed like Pedro's position had less and less reason to exist. He was increasingly seen as a political liability. The conservatives saw him as too progressive, especially his abolitionism. The new liberals saw him as not progressive enough, and they still resented his interference back in 1868, when he had sided with Caxias, a conservative, against his own liberal ministry. The younger generations took Brazil's prosperity and unity for granted and didn't remember the struggles of the past. They wondered why they put up with the old man. The old heads who remembered the chaos before Pedro's reign, they were all gone. They weren't around to remind the youngsters why Pedro had been so important all these years. When he took the throne, Pedro had been the only thing holding Brazil together. Over the last 40 years, he had done such an amazing job welding his country into a nation that many people wondered why he was necessary. Pedro had forged a nation that had outgrown the need for him. He had made himself redundant. Pedro had two big reforms left in him. He managed to get a voting reform bill passed in the early 1880s. And even if it was disappointing to a lot of people, it was only a half measure, the 1881 elections were the freest Brazil had ever seen. Pedro expended enormous energy getting this reform bill passed. Just years of work. And then there was the big one. Pedro got the ball rolling. He did much of the work and got the, almost all the way there. But it was his daughter, Isabel, who sealed the deal. Pedro was on his third trip to Europe in 1888 when he got the news he had been waiting for all his life. On May 13th, 1888, Princess Isabel signed the Lea Oria, the Golden Law. It was a short law. Article 1. From the date of this law, slavery is declared extinct in Brazil. Article 2. All dispositions to the contrary are revoked. Pedro broke down sobbing with joy when he heard the news. When he returned to Brazil in August, the whole country met him with celebration and cheering. Slaves, suddenly freed, clamored around the emperor in droves, dancing in the streets, and Brazil received the acclamation of the whole Western world. They were the last nation in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery. The chains of five centuries of oppression and grief and suffering had finally been broken. Pedro had never been more popular with the population at large, more prominent in the global sphere. The economy was roaring. Brazil had finally joined the modern world. It had become a nation. It was the climax of the empire. And in just over a year, it would all be over. Lots of Western military historians have a hidden bias. There is this inbuilt assumption that a strong professional military is a good thing, and countries with weak or politicized or underfunded militaries are doing something inherently wrong. This is because most Western military historians take the military's loyalty to the state, to the people, for granted. Of course you want a strong, professional, a smart military. Who doesn't? And this is a mistake. You can look at the history of Latin America for evidence of that. The countries of Latin America grapple with a military paradox. All of these countries face or have faced external or internal threats, threats that often require a strong, capable military to defeat. 
But strong, capable militaries in Latin America are extremely prone to launching coups and seizing power for themselves. There just isn't the automatic deference of military to civilian authority that we take for granted in the United States. If you're a civilian leader in Latin America, you have much more to fear from your own military than you do any outside enemy. Maybe you want to keep the military weak on purpose. Maybe you want to stack the officer corps with your cronies and cut the army's budget. If that keeps Colonel Corrupto or General Oligarco from walking into your office and shoving a pistol in your face, it might be worth it. The Brazilian army and navy had been kept weak for years before the Paraguayan War. Then the war came, and they were lavish with money and funds and equipment and respect and authority. A new crop of junior officers gained positions of rank and power that they'd never dreamed of holding before the war. And, you know, when when Dom Pedro intervenes on Caxias' behalf, he sides with the army and gives the army more authority in the country, not less. He allows the army's interests to overtake civilian interests, and this was, down the road, a mistake. Because these younger officers, who had been small unit leaders in the Paraguayan War, they were the bedrock of the coup that overthrew Dom Pedro II. The older commanders, like the Duke of Caxias or General Osorio, those guys had been diehard imperial loyalists. But by 1889, those guys were dead. They were replaced by younger men, who had been forged together in the fires of Paraguay. The Brazilian officer corps had been shaped and molded by that conflict. They had interests, they become a class with interests of its own, men who wanted the army to regain the prominence that it had in the Paraguayan War. So the military, which had previously not been a huge factor in Brazilian politics, now was. It was a self-interested institution that thought maybe we should rule the country. Most of these young officers had been educated at the Imperial Military Academy, where one of their main professors was a Paraguayan war veteran named Benjamin Constant. Constant helped inject a new ideology into the cadets and junior officers of the army. This was a political principle called positivism, an obscure ideology founded by French philosophers that basically says that all truth comes from reason and logic, garnered from observed experience. Sounds nice, right? Well, it's always these innocent-sounding ideas that end up being really cracked when people put them into practice. From Constant's viewpoint, positivism meant absolute rejection of religion and monarchy in the imposition of an objective, merit-based hierarchy. So basically, the, uh, the tech bro version of every government, if you want to really understand that this isn't as great as it sounds. Benjamin Constant and his clique were Republicans, but combined with that positive mindset, positivist mindset, this vision involved a Republican dictatorship where the smartest and most objectively qualified men would seize power. And in Constant's eyes, of course, the best and most objectively qualified men were the heroes of the Paraguayan War. The army. Strong, tough leaders, instead of doddering old fools like Dom Pedro. The potential dictator, the guy who was, in Constant's eyes, the best and most qualified man, was Brazil's most prominent soldier, Marshal Manuel Deodoro da Fonseca. Fonseca had been one of seven brothers to fight in the Paraguayan War, dubbed the Seven Swords of Alagoas from a famous military family. Two of his brothers had died at Curupaiti, and a third died at Itotoro, where Deodoro himself was wounded. Fonseca was one of Brazil's greatest military heroes, very popular with the army. And throughout the 1880s, he took every budget cut and every political decision that didn't favor the army as a personal insult. By the late 1880s, the army was openly mutinous and rebellious, believing that they had earned the right with their blood and sacrifice to dictate matters in their nation, that their sacrifice justified their cause. The army wasn't strong enough to act on its own. Republicanism was still a very fringe movement, only holding sway in a few elite circles, But in 1888, something happened that made it much more popular. See, the plantation landowning class had been the bedrock of the empire. They had supported the empire all this time, right up until Dom Pedro's brat had taken all their slaves away. They were really mad about that, and they agreed to side with the army and support a coup to overthrow the empire. So this unholy alliance of conservative landowners mad about the end of slavery and radical Republicans spearheaded by the army who wanted to set up a military dictatorship, 
set the coup into motion. I want to be clear, this was not a mass movement. The vast majority of Brazilians did not want or need a regime change. Pedro and the empire were at the peak of their popularity with the population at large. The country was stable and calm. The economy was great. The masses loved Pedro. It was the elites that had a problem with him. The elites who were Republicans and launched this coup. Early on November 15th, 1889, the officers of the Rio garrison led their troops out into the city streets. Benjamin Constant arrived to join them from the military academy, and Marshal Deodoro de Fonseca put himself at their head. He drew the troops up in battle order facing the army headquarters, where other troops awaited them under General Floriano Pexoto. Pexoto was another hero of the war. He had formed the small boat flotilla on the Uruguay River in 1865. He had won glory at the Battle of Ave, and he had led troops at the final battle at Cerro Corá, where Lopez had been killed in 1870. The prime minister ordered Pexoto to stop the mutiny, like, look, there are the rebels, they're mutiny, they're trying to overthrow the empire, use your troops to put them down. But Pexoto refused. When the prime minister pointed out that he had faced much greater danger in the Paraguayan War, Pexoto responded, Yes, but there we had enemies in front. And here, we are all Brazilians. Basically, I'm not going to shoot at my fellow soldiers. I have more sympathy with them than I do with you. Pexoto took the prime minister into custody and went over to the rebels. Within hours, Rio de Janeiro was under control of the army. That afternoon, Fonseca and the conspirators moved to the city hall and declared the first Brazilian republic. Pedro could have fought. The country was full of his supporters, including large paramilitary organizations called the Black Guards, African-American paramilitaries full of former slaves and Paraguayan war veterans, ready to fight for the monarchy, and the country at large supported him. But when the time came to choose between his ego and his power, and the good of his country, Pedro refused to fight for his throne. He didn't want to see blood spilled in the streets of his capital. He didn't want to ignite a civil war. He would not be Lopez, dragging his nation down with him. If the movers and shakers in his country wanted him to leave, he would leave. When he heard that a republic had been declared, Pedro said, If it is so, it will be my retirement. I have worked too hard and I am tired. I will go rest then. The royals were given no time to pack or prepare, no money. Pedro couldn't even grab his books. But despite all the turmoil, the emperor seemed calm, compliant, like an observer, an onlooker, rather than the center of all this. Isabel, Princess Isabel, was bitter. She knew she would never be empress. She was too religious. The Comte du was unpopular. The conservatives would never forgive her for abolishing slavery. As a popular saying went, Her Highness redeemed a race, but lost the throne. No, Isabel was bitter on behalf of her father. She was like, you want a republic? Fine, just let the old man die at home. Just wait a couple more years. He doesn't have much longer. Just let him die in his study with his books like he wanted. But that ship had sailed, literally. On November 20th, 1889, a steamer took the Brazilian imperial family to Europe. Dom Pedro and Princess Isabel would never see their homeland again. The empire was dead. Long live the Republic. Brazil collapsed into chaos. A civil war broke out as army units divided between monarchists and republicans. Any black soldiers basically sided with the monarchists. Fonseca turned out to be just another run-of-the-mill military dictator, no savior of his nation. He revoked freedom of speech and civil liberties trying to restore order. The Brazilian Navy, always the more monarchist of the services, mutinied in 1891 and 1893. Rebellions roiled the nation, the Federalist Revolution 1893-95, the Canudos War 1896-98, and an attempted revolution in 1902. Brazil's economy stagnated, its international reputation declined, and Fonseca's dictatorship created a new regime of tin-pot dictators, military strongmen, and capitalist oligarchs. Welcome to the new improved Brazil, I guess. Let me make it clear, I am not a monarchist. People who are monarchists in the present day are freaking weirdos. But you know, you know, 
it's hard to see how Brazil really benefited from the coup of 1889. It's not like they replaced the monarchy with a democracy. The monarchy's not the best governing system, but there are worse ones. This is an oligarchy. Pedro took his exile in stride. It might have been his retirement, but he didn't act like it. He was still constantly reading, writing, bouncing across France and Portugal and Spain, just living out his final years. But he still seemed weighed down by the massive burden of Brazil. He tried to undertake academic achievements like translating books and stuff. For the glory of Brazil, he kept saying. For Brazil. Like, the Brazilians... You're translating books. The Brazilians aren't going to care about this, but he was still trying to serve Brazil any way he could. It was what he had been born to do, raised to do, all he knew how to do. It was what he was. One observer who hung out with the royal family said, They never use the words, my throne, my kingdom, my empire, my dynasty. It is only Brazil, my beautiful country, for my house, for my garden, for my friends. But the old man was tired, tired from carrying that weight for so long. His eyesight was fading to the point that he could no longer read, his only escape. He was penniless, the Brazilian Republic gave him no money, and he had to live on charity. And the women in his life were leaving. Empress Teresa Cristina, distraught at being forced from her home and her country, died three weeks after they arrived in Europe. His wife's death nearly broke Pedro. It seemed like he only really appreciated how much she had meant to him, when she was gone. And then the Condesa de Baral, his closest friend and emotional anchor, died only months later. Just as he had been at the beginning, Pedro was alone. On December 5th, 1891, Dom Pedro II lay on his deathbed in Paris, dying of pneumonia, surrounded by his family. His last words were, May God grant me these last wishes, peace and prosperity for Brazil. His family found a sealed package of Brazilian soil in his room, with Pedro's wishes that it be placed in his coffin so he could rest with his fatherland. Dom Pedro received a state funeral in Paris on December 9th, and his funeral was attended by representatives from the whole scientific community who had never forgotten his patronage and reputation as the great progressive emperor. His coffin was taken to Lisbon, where he and Teresa Cristina were laid to rest in the Braganza Cathedral beside his father and ancestors. The Republic tried to forget the Empire. They took Pedro's name off the schools he'd founded, the streets he'd paved, the railroad stations he'd built. They banned recognition of his birthday and suppressed any monarchist factions. But many Brazilians, especially black Brazilians, still remembered the old emperor with fondness and pride. Black Brazilians especially saw him and Isabel as the liberators. His age looked a lot better compared to the rolling dumpster fire that was the First Republic. And even though the dictators that replaced the emperor tried to erase his, his memory, the people never forgot him. Pedro died believing that his country had rejected him. But that would change. When news arrived of Pedro's death, a wave of remorse swept across Brazil. Even though the Republican government banned any official reaction, everyone ignored them. One historian describes it. There were demonstrations of sorrow throughout the country, shuttered business activity, flags displayed at half-staff, black armbands on clothes, death knells, religious ceremonies. If there's any sign that the pop population at large had not supported the coup, it's this widespread mourning for the emperor only two years after he was overthrown. And when the Brazilian people remembered what he had done for them, remembered the progress he had given them, when they put his name back on the streets and the schools, when they turned his palace into a museum and erected his statues across the country, when black Brazilians tattooed the imperial crown on their bodies in honor of his work for their freedom, when the Republic lifted his exile posthumously, when they brought his and his wife's bodies home in 1920 to rebury them in Brazil, when they acclaimed him the father of the nation, when Brazil's past and present saw him as the model citizen, their symbol of integrity and honor and progress and liberty, the greatest of all Brazilians, the man who had forged their nation. When all that happened, Pedro resumed his place at the heart of the nation he had served so well, the nation he had basically created. But all that was to come later. All that was what he had already been. But on December 5th, 1891, 
when the old emperor breathed his last and laid his burden down, he was something he had never been in his life. Pedro was free. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Spread the word, pass the tapes. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources in the big Paraguayan War Source post, and some additional commentary here and there. If you have any comments about today's episode, best way to reach me is to message me on Facebook or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate the feedback and the commentary, even if it's just, hey, I like what you do, please keep doing it. If it's not kind, just, hey, you suck, I'll, I'll take that on board, probably. I'm not perfect, so if you got advice, you know, constructive advice, I'd love to hear it. And we are finally done with South America. Check back in February, because we are going to Africa. It's the year 1896, and every African kingdom has fallen to the European imperialists. Except one. A mountain kingdom called Ethiopia stands against the might of a conquering European army. See you next month for episode 52, The Last King of Africa, here on Unknown Soldiers.